listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what is likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. The gap between the world's richest and poorest is well documented and it's staggering. But are we the authors of our own fate? A recent book, The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market, is exposing the gap for what it is, theft. And Keith is here to break it all down for us. Keith, thank you for joining us today. So there's one number in this book that is quite staggering. It claims $47 trillion has flowed to the wealthiest people in the US since World War II, essentially out of the pockets of regular citizens. How does this book come to that conclusion? Yeah, this is a remarkable claim. So looking at, as you say, the gap between the rich and the poor, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting richer, but there is a growing gap between the rich and the poor. Mm. So the poor are not growing as fast in terms of their income as the rich are. The book examines a very simple question. If American income inequality had remained at its 1975 level, so we're talking about 50 years ago, through until the year 2008, how much more money would the bottom 90% of Americans have made during those 43 years? Put another way, how much additional wealth flowed to the top 10% during this time, thanks to the increased income inequality? And the figure this book has decided on is $47 trillion. Mm. So we're talking about a million, million dollars. Times 47. It's a huge sum of money. Mm. And so this looks at the change which occurred in the Western world, not necessarily in Scandinavia. They weren't affected. But certainly we see in uh, the United States, Ronald Reagan, in Great Britain, Margaret Thatcher, in our own country, the Labor government of Bob Hawke, Paul Keating. In New Zealand, it was David Longy. So Political labels don't mean very much. Mm. What happened is that a whole new way of thinking about the economy came into being around the late 1970s, early 1980s. Looking back on it, I had studied undergraduate economics a few years earlier. And for me, I could see now that I was being taught by different lecturers who had different worldviews. This wasn't spelt out for humble undergraduates at the time, but I had some university lecturers who had clearly grown up in the idea of the role of government, particularly reflecting what had happened in the Great Depression and then World War II. The role of government was to be there on the commanding heights of the economy, setting the overall sense of direction. And that was the established view in the 50s and 60s. Again, it didn't make much difference about the political parties. They all followed the same reasoning. And then there was this alternative view I now recognise, which was emerging amongst younger economics lecturers who were saying we've got to put greater reliance upon the market and do not rely so much on government. And so this article is looking at what has happened in the United States and the way in which this second point of view, in other words, downplaying the role of government, has enabled some people to do extremely well. 
as I say, Scandinavia, Finland, Sweden, Norway, they didn't fall for this. And so they have retained a policy of high government taxation and the appropriate provision of welfare services. Mm -hmm. For example, in 1978, I was in California at the time of what's called the Taxpayers' Revolt. So California, every so often, every couple of years, votes both for the politicians and also the laws which they need to implement. Okay. It's a really weird system Mm. of government. So these are called propositions. June 1978, there was a vote on a proposition to reduce the high level of state government taxation and at the same time acknowledge that you're going to get fewer services for it. And, of course, when you look back at it, California was a thriving state. You can't say that so easily today. It's actually losing population. People are moving out. Mm. But in those days, California was growing, and one of the arguments is it was growing because of government expenditure. Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas then we undergo what's called this taxpayers' revolt and people said, look, I'd much rather have the money in my pocket rather than trusting politicians to spend it on my behalf, even though I know I'm going to get fewer services out of it. And, of course, if you go to California today, you'll see the the consequence of that with all the homelessness and the drug problems, et cetera. I lived through this sort of changeover when I was studying economics, Mm -hmm. but I was slow to pick up. But you've got these two alternative points of view. Now, this is a document which has actually examined how much money was made that transfer across from the the poor to the rich. As I say, it comes at this answer of $47 trillion, Mm. which is, as the article says, this is a number so large that it surpasses human understanding. There are only a few hundred billion stars in the Milky Way. Mm. $47 trillion is about twice the size of the annual U.S. government domestic product. Mm. So it's a huge sum of money. And we see something similar, of course, here in Australia. We've reduced taxation and we're still supplying some services. But I get complaints, for example, from students. And I went through university, admittedly it was in England, but some of the older listeners here in Australia remember a time when they were undergraduates and they got their education for free. All for free. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Not paying hex debts like the rest of us. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the so this is the huge change. Now, the book which has examined this is by Naomi Oreskes. Now, Naomi teaches at Harvard, and she's been very good on looking at how people get manipulated by certain individuals in terms of the environment. So she came to well for me anyway. She came to prominence with the climate change debate Mm. and the way in which people were denying that there was a problem with the climate. And the people who were doing the denying had previously been employed by the tobacco industry to say there's no harmful effects with smoking. So she then came to prominence as a, a writer with a science background who was able to say, look, we're being manipulated by these people. What she's now done, she's moved on from tobacco (laughs) to the environment and now she's on economics Mm -hmm. and has again shown how this reasoning that you leave everything to the market and let the market solve all the problems, it is this reasoning which has caused this huge gap between the rich and the poor in the United States. So Naomi Oreskes is a very good historian 
and well worth reading her material, either on tobacco or climate change <laughs> or now on economics. <laughs> We've got a wide range to choose from. So I guess the idea then, because I'm no economics expert, I admit that freely, I googled free market to understand better what it is and what it means. And I guess it was interesting that you brought up Scandinavian countries, which have gone in the opposite direction. And they're life outcomes, their happiness outcomes, their job <laughs> outcomes, everything is better for them. This system that we've kind of seemed to have adopted in the West and, you know, Australia, uh, New yeah. Zealand, the UK, the US, obviously, you know, it's worse for us. And how do we pull ourselves out of that? Well, that's the advantage of getting someone like Naomi Oreskes to write on this subject because she's very good at examining how people get manipulated. Mm. You know, that the smokers get reassured that they're not endangering their health, for example, by smoking cigarettes. And so what she's done is to look at how this idea of the free market has caught on so easily, including by manipulating the writing of Adam Smith, who's seen as the father of modern economics, and really just misquoting him as well. So she's done a very good job at looking at how people have been exploited by these, I think, unscrupulous individuals who are just saying, look, you want to minimise the extent of government intervention. If you intervene, you mess things up. Now, what they're doing is also riding the coattails of the anti-government feeling that there is in the community. And I, I can't deny that that is certainly there. You know, I'm, I'm one of those who makes all sorts of comments about, you know, Canberra is the place where dreams go to die, et cetera. <laughs> so I'm, I'm also antagonistic towards government bureaucracy. And, of course, there's that marvellous TV program called Utopia, mm -hmm. uh, which you can now watch on, on ABC iView, uh, free of charge. Brilliant, showing what a dead loss so much of the Canberra bureaucrats are. The problem is these bureaucrats and the political shenanigans that we see amongst the politicians, these have damaged the prestige of trying to get greater trust in what the state can deliver. So we're seeing, I think, a new movement, which is not covered in this article, by Mariana Masakuta, formerly at Sussex and now at University College London. And she's actually arguing in terms of moonshots and projects. You know, she said, look, if we can get a person to the moon ahead of schedule back in 1969, one year early, why can't we do better things than this? So I think that she represents the new big paradigm shift. So you start off with... The idea of big government, that comes about in the 1930s with the failure of the Depression and the failure of governments to solve that problem. Then governments begrudgingly get involved. In Britain, it was building homes. In the United States, it was mainly planting trees, building roads, that sort of thing, and, and taking photographs of people building roads mm -hmm, as well. Mm -hmm. So the United States became a major photographer. <laughs> <laughs> so then it moves on through World War II where you get this brilliant mobilisation. And so that, that is one way of looking at economics. You have government involved in the economy. But then in the 1970s, that model was beginning to run down and we end up with a thing called stagflation, mm. which is a mixture of inflation and stagnation, which in economic theory you can't have. Because if you pump more money into the economy, you get economic growth. You don't get stagnation. And yet here we were. We were living. I lived through this. Mm. Right for you youngsters, I lived through that stagflation. <laughs> and so that's why it gave rise to people who are saying, just get the government out of the way. Just rely on the market. It'll be tough for some people. 
but it means that we will be able to strengthen the economy. And that's how people have justified continuing with Mrs Thatcher's policies. And I think now people are saying, well, economic rationalism does not work. We've got to find an alternative. Hence, we've got this movement by Mariana Mazzucuto where she's saying we've got to get the government back into big picture. The problem is government has been so privatised, broken down and disorganised, it's going to be very difficult to see if we can get it, in which case the future is pretty bleak because you're going to have all sorts of issues with just relying on the market and a lack of expertise and a lack of ambition amongst the, the civil servants and politicians thinking on in, in short-term issues as well. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. This week, we're discussing the huge gap between the world's richest people and the rest of us. What's driving this injustice? Do you think it's greed alone? It is greed, absolutely. Mm. And, you know, people put their faith in, say, for example, broadcasters. And the broadcasters themselves are very wealthy and they benefit from the gap between the rich and the poor. So although they give the impression that they're spokespeople for the poor, a bit like Donald Trump. You know, Donald Trump campaigned on this, mm. that he, he was correct in identifying this as a major issue in American politics. But then once he gets into office, it gets captured by the finance sector and the banking lobby and really doesn't do anything to help his supporters. He uses the language which resonates with them, but not the actual policies which will help them. That's right. And so we see the same here, I think, with certain broadcasters we have in Australia who are claiming to be on the side of the poor people. But in fact, they're not doing anything really to help them at all. Mm. And so they're just being manipulated. And I wanted to bring up, the book talks about how we look at the free market as it just exists. There's nothing anyone can do about it. But it kind of suggests that we're the people. We could change it if we wanted to. And we did so in the 1930s. Mm. Along comes in the United Kingdom, John Maynard Keynes. In the United States, it was Franklin Roosevelt who came along and said, look, we cannot rely on the free market to solve problems. There has to be government intervention. You see, prior to John Maynard Keynes in Great Britain, the argument was that, look, unemployment is just a fact of life. It's a bit like bushfires and floods, an act of God. You can't do anything about it. And he said, well, I think you can by the use of government expenditure. Mm. If necessary, have people digging holes and pay another group of people to fill those holes up, but just keep the money circulating in the economy. Now, this was his approach was quite heretical for the economics profession at the time. There's no problem with government expenditure as such. Even conservative economists recognise there's a need for some government expenditure. But here was Keynes saying, well, if necessary a government goes into debt to then put money into circulation. And then once the economy picks up, you increase the taxation to suck the money out of the economy. Mm -hmm. The problem is that politicians love putting money into the economy but wouldn't increase the taxation to take it out again. And that remains our problem. Politicians don't want to raise taxes. And so we therefore ended up with stagflation in the 1970s. And, of course, for supporters of the free market saying, well, there we are, we told you, you can't trust politicians with the economy. Keep them right out of it. So what we've got to do is to try to rebuild trust in having human intervention in the economy. 
And that's going to take a, a real problem, you know, for us. It's going to take an awful lot of effort, I'm afraid. Do you see it happening? I can't, personally. <laughs> <laughs> but you know me, I'm a cynical journalist. So, exactly, you know, yes. Give me the good news. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mariana Masakuta would say, yes, you can. Mm. We can rebuild trust in government. We do have some good projects. And remember, the Scandinavians never lost their trust in government. And, and they didn't get quite won over by the greed is good mentality. You'd see CEOs, multi-millionaire CEOs, travelling on public transport. No shame involved in using public transport. Whereas in America, of course, the buses are seen as loser vehicles. Yeah. You know, you don't travel by public transport. Therefore, they've got no problem with neglecting spending on it because they don't use it. Whereas in Scandinavia, people still think that you should have good public transport. Mm. And I think it's Finland that now says it is abolished homelessness. Really? We've got homeless people outside this building as we speak. Yes, I know. And and one third of America's homeless people live in California. And here we've got one Scandinavian country saying we have now abolished homelessness. So is that the ideal then in terms of what an alternative is to the system that we currently experience here and then also in the US and the UK? We've got to get the government back into running it. But the problem is that as soon as I make that suggestion, people say, oh, well, we've seen utopia. <laughs> we've seen, yes, minister. <laughs> we really don't want to trust the bureaucrats. And, of course, in the meantime, the bureaucrats have outsourced a lot of the work anyway to, for example, big accounting agencies, mm. which are also now subject to a bit of a question mark. So who's going to be able to run this sort of thing? We've got no major political party talking about the need to reintroduce the government back into running the economy. That's really what we need to get a, a good sense of direction. And I think the environmental crisis is a good example about where you just can't rely on the market because the argument with the market is that they will send out price signals that you're running out of coal or you're running out of whatever. But the problem is that a lot of people will just ignore those price signals and they will just run out. Like, for example, the disappearance of the cod industry mm. in the North Atlantic. If you go to, for example, the north of England, if you want to go look for a fishing vessel today, you've got to go to the museum. <laughs> they no longer have those big fishing fleets. Yeah, yeah. So the, the market didn't really help those poor fishers, mm. uh, didn't give enough of a warning. And so really, if we're going to handle the climate change crisis, we need to have more government involvement in the economy. If only if it's building seawalls. Otherwise, Florida goes under a, quite a bit of water, mm. at least the coastal area of Florida. So we, we need to think about how we're going to reinvent government. And Naomi Oreskes is saying, well, okay, if you're going to reinvent government, just make sure that you don't get people coming along with these big myths <laughs> <laughs> and manipulating the general public <gasps> and gaslighting voters. Yeah, well, which I think is the problem as well is that people don't feel they can trust the government, so it's this vicious cycle repeating yep. itself. But to me... The alternative is what we're in now, where the rich get richer and the poor keep getting poorer. That's right. You're a very cynical journalist. <laughs> Tragic in somebody as young as yourself. <laughs> Thanks for your time, Keith. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr. Keith Suter and me, Sasha Barber-Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nicolich.